Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm just going to read one verse, uh, then we will go uh, to Isaiah 9, the ninth chapter. And then our text this morning will be Ephesians 4. Uh, but last week, I just want to focus on a couple of verses in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, um, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your uh, might. Just read that again. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now go to Isaiah 9, uh, this great Advent verse. Uh, Isaiah would write, beginning in verse 6, for a child, Isaiah 9, verse 6, for a child will be born to us a son will be given to us the advent. That's what we're celebrating, the birth. And then the, the second coming, the waiting for that second appearance. But uh, again, verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be, his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And so... Um, I go back to that Deuteronomy 6 verse, and it's interesting that you, you said about Moses this morning, Larry, that if Moses was a lot of things, he was a redeemer, uh, he was a shepherd, um, God used him in a mighty way, um, but if you had to just separate and look at Moses and the meaning of his life and the different dynamics of it, he was the lawgiver. God gave him, the children of Israel, those first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He's the author, and he has been called the lawgiver. And when we say lawgiver, we mean the word of God. And whatever that number of people was, Larry, whatever it was, uh, they needed many things. Obviously, they need to be fed, and they just need the daily provisions, whatever that number was, large number of people. But the thing that they needed most was the counsel of the Lord. That's what they needed. Um, the counsel of the Lord is the standard by which everything becomes relevant and has meaning. Um, any other counsel is temporary. But the counsel of the Lord is eternal, and it gives meaning and relevance to anything. And so Moses was the lawgiver. And his counsel from God was, and we talked about it last week, was ultimately it boiled down to this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He's our God. And, and you are to love him. And when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he referenced this. You and I are supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. And that was his counsel. And then all the law of God would be based upon that statement. If we're doing that first then the law makes sense. And so Jesus was called Wonderful Counselor. If you go to the Gospel of John, Jesus would tell his apostles that I'm leaving, but I'm going to give you a counselor, a helper. And the word, it interconnects. And that, so that Holy Spirit would take the role of counselor. It would guide us. It would teach us. Wonderful Counselor, Holy Spirit, by the way, in Isaiah 9, you see the evidence of the triune, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity of God. But that's, we'll talk a little bit more about that in ensuing weeks. But here's what I wanted to say to you today. So if, 
if, if I had to take the entire Bible and put it in a New Testament setting and focus on the counsel of God that is the relevance of the advent, of his birth and his second coming, if I had to pick one place in Scripture, it would be the book of Ephesians. It really would. It would be Paul's pleading to Christians that he helped. Uh, God used him in Ephesus 2,000 years ago on a missionary trip to establish a church. He was there with those people for two years. We're studying him now Sunday mornings, studying that book. But if you read Ephesians, the premise, the foundation, Ephesians 1, chapter 3, everything that Ephesians is about is Paul proving this statement. The entire book of Ephesians is Paul proving this statement. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Read that again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. The rest of Ephesians is a proof. He's proving that statement. If you didn't ever know what blessings were, or you weren't sure what every blessing in the spiritual place was, you could read the book of Ephesians, and from this point on, every single verse, if you, you say, well, I think this is a blessing, this might be a blessing, I'm pretty sure this is a blessing, you, every verse after this statement is the proof and the reality of a spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that God has given us through his Son. It is the proof and the reality and the text which verifies, identifies the blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place. So now when you read the first three chapters, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. Basically the first chapter he says, God, he, him, his, over and over and over again, he uses the personal pronoun of God referencing the he, him, and himself. And it's just everything that God has done for us. He chose us. He predestined us. He lavished upon us. He, he made known to us the mystery of his will. All these things. And then you get to the second chapter. And the second chapter, the response to that. Even though you and I were dead in our trespasses, this is everything that God has done for us. Even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were, Ephesians 2 and 1, God did something. And that is, by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself, lest no man boast. So he, him, his, this is the spiritual blessing, he did this. You and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, but by grace he saved us through faith, that not of ourselves. And in the third chapter, Paul says, for this reason, my life has meaning. For this reason, everything that God has done for me, saving me by grace through faith, that not of myself, and he did it, because verse 10 of chapter 2, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So for this reason, Paul, verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, the prisoner of the Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, then he talks about his ministry. God did this in spite of my sinfulness. And because of that, my life has meaning the counsel of the Lord. And so chapter 4, verse 1, Paul is a prisoner now. He's a prisoner. He's been illegally arrested. And uh, you ought to read the book of Philippians. It's another letter he writes while he's a prisoner. 
And he says, I've learned the secret to be content in every situation. It's a wonderful book. He would say to the Philippians, rejoice again. I say in the Lord, rejoice. But in chapter 4, verse 1, he makes this statement. What do you think, Advent? Wonderful counselor. I know that God has blessed me with all these things he did for me through Christ and in Christ, even though I was a terrible sinner. But God, being rich in his mercy, he saved me. And because of that, my life has meaning. I'm a minister. I, I, I minister to people. And then he says in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of what you've been called for, how you've been called, and why you have been called. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you, I beg with you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which which you have been called. If, if the world ever needed the understanding and the living life in the body of Christ, the living of this call, I really believe, I do, uh, I hope I'm not a victim of, of current news. I mean, the world's always been a mess. It was a mess when Cain killed Abel. And it's been a mess ever since. But I really believe in, in my heart of hearts and according to the teaching of Scripture that we, we are living in those times where lawlessness has increased. And uh, the very pages of Scripture are, are becoming true, not day by day, but minute by minute. And, uh, and he... His counsel. If you go 2 Timothy chapter 3 of verse 16, Paul would say, every word of God has been inspired by God for counsel. Really, what he's saying, for teaching and rebuke and uh, reproof and for the training of a person in the way of righteousness. So every word of God is inspired by God. And the counsel to the New Testament church that is from the wonderful counselor is this, I beg you to live in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called. One of the most abused words in all of Christianity is this word calling. You say, well, I have a calling. Well, what does that mean? It's been terribly misused. There was only one meaning that Paul had concern when he made this statement, and believe me, you, the Ephesians knew it. If I ask you what your calling was, well, you might get any number of answers from you. Let me just make sure that Paul, they knew. When he said, I'm begging you, Christians in Ephesus, I'm begging you to live in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called, they knew what calling meant. This is what it meant. A calling was a voice. It, it's very simple. You, you can't have a calling without a voice. It's a voice saying, hey, I need you to do this. I need you to be here. I need you to come here. It's a voice. And for Paul, the only voice that mattered was the voice of God and his son, Jesus Christ, and in the reality of the Holy Spirit, which we had been promised and given, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
So Paul is saying, I'm begging you to live in a manner worthy of the voice of God, his Son, and the Holy Spirit, which has called you to something. Now I want to tell you, if you're having a problem in your life, this is the cure-all. If you are having a problem in your life as a Christian living in this world, whatever's happening in your life, this is the cure-all. If there's conflict, if there's division, if there's this struggle that you're not sure about, and, and, and you put it in the realm of spiritual warfare, and I think, well, I, I'm pretty sure what's happening to me right now, the, the emotions I'm feeling, uh, the, the, the conflict, whatever it is, I'll go ahead and put that in the realm of spiritual warfare. I, I, I'll support the words of Ephesians, and I'll support Peter's word that, that, that we're in a spiritual battle. And Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I, I believe that. Well, you want the cure-all? Not just for spiritual warfare, but for daily living? It's right here. Live your life in a manner worthy of the calling. Now, Paul, here it is. You talk about Advent. There was a reason for a birth, and there is the reality of the death, burial, and resurrection. The reason of the birth was moving towards a moment. The moment of the second coming is based upon a moment. The loudest and most important voice that ever called out to humanity happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. And Paul said to the Ephesians, and they knew exactly what he was talking. Now read it this way. This is the correct translation. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you to walk in a manner... Worthy of the cross. That's it. That's what the Advent's about. The birth was about a sacrifice, a child that would be born. He would be a wonderful counselor. What made his counsel wonderful? The cross. A lot of counselors in this world, no one has endured the cross. No one. What made him mighty God? The cross. Thomas would say, doubting Thomas, he said, I'm not going to believe unless I see the, the, the wounds. And Jesus appeared and he kept his wounds. Did you ever think about that? You know the great gift from God? That he kept his wounds. And he showed them to Thomas. And you know what Thomas said? My God. My God. It was the moment in John. He's mighty God because of the cross. He's eternal father because of the cross. He's the prince of peace because of the cross. Uh, the best, I beg you to live in a manner worthy of the calling. He's saying, I'm begging you to live in a manner of the voice of the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit that is based upon and resonates and comes from the cross. Name one thing in your life that's going on in your life where you've got something overwhelming that the cross, the voice from the cross wouldn't cure. You got enemies? Look to the cross. You got frustrations? Look to the cross. You got needs? Look to the cross. The voice that comes from the cross. I beg you in a manner worthy of the calling, the voice of which you've been called, live your life in that manner. You look at anything in your life and say, this is not in a manner of the voice that comes from the cross. There's the problem. Look at any point of your life and say, this is a dynamic in my life. My marriage is based upon 
the voice that called from the cross. And I'm going to live my life with, oh, marriage problem solved. It's the cure-all. And if you don't know what that looks like, Paul gives you the answer. Say, well, okay, he's begging me to live in a manner worthy of the cross. And here's what it looks like. Verse 2, with all humility. He gives the, now he gives the, the reality, he gives you the evidence. He gives you the proof. He gives you, what, if you didn't know what it would look like, humility. Name, a, name the most humble act you've ever, been, you've ever seen. Where you just saw that is just humility. That's humble. That's humility. Paul writes a great hymn in the Philippians in the second chapter. He said, have the same attitude that was evident in Christ Jesus, that although he existed in the form of God, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of a slave and became obedient to the point of death. The most humble act that all of humanity has ever witnessed, the demons in their demonic state, the moment where Satan, where he might have thought he might have a victory, was that terrible moment for Satan in his dominion, in his minion, where Jesus Christ on the cross humbled himself to the point of death. With all humility, gentleness. The best advice that I ever received from my grandfather, and I've had a hard time living it because I, I, I have too much, I'm a prideful man. I, I don't say that falsely, I just am. I don't like it. I struggle with it. It's, um, but it's the, the, the opposite of that is gentleness. Name a more gentle moment than the cross. Could you imagine the gentleness that had to be required? In his pain and his agony to tell a criminal, today you'll be with me in paradise. To look out at John and his mother and say, here's your son and here's your mother. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I therefore, the prison of the Lord, beg you to live your life in a manner worthy of the cross with all humility and gentleness. Think of all the times that you as a Christian have not been gentle according to the cross. And then think of all the trouble it's caused you. And not just you, but all the others around you. Patience. With all humility and gentleness, with patience. How patient are you? How patient was Christ 2,000 years ago on the cross? He could have called 10,000 angels. And they hurled insults at him. And they spit on him. And they beat him before they made him try to carry the cross. I always think of his patience, and this is the way I have seen it in my life, is one step at a time trying to carry the cross. I've never had that much patience in my life. 
when all he had to do was open his mouth and say, Father, send them. Send them. Send those angels. And he took another step patiently till he couldn't take it anymore. And someone else had to carry his cross. Forbearance. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. I think the one thing that Christians lack the most is forbearance. What do you mean? Having enough humility and gentleness and patience in us that, that we, can, we can withstand whatever. We ought to be the least offended people in the world. We're the most easily offended. We're always getting our, our feelings hurt. You, you talk about forbearance. You take somebody, a great example of that is a, is, a, is a parent that has patience with a child. They're just, they're forbearing. It's like they understand something greater because it's their child and they have a love and they know the flaws. And, and, but we're just not like that many times. Many times we don't have any forbearance. We're so quickly, easily offended. I, I, I remember a great evangelist saying, that Jesus Christ will allow you to be offended till you cannot be offended anymore. If you're easily offended and you're always and you're always being offended, somebody you're always mad at somebody, you're always upset, and maybe you could prove it. Maybe you're right. But you're offended by that, you have no forbearance. And Jesus Christ will allow you to continue to be insulted and offended till you cannot take it, till you till you finally said, This is not working for me. It's forbearance. First Corinthians 13, Paul says, that love, godly love, holds no record of wrongs. It's forbearing. It says, I can stand this. It's not about me. It has nothing to do with me. It's about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Being diligent. Name a moment in the history of humanity where there's been more diligence. If you see Jesus Christ on the cross, and believe me you, he was, he was, not, he was not a soft man. He, his skin would have been very dark. His hands and feet would have been calloused. The feminine picture that we see of Jesus, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, but this soft, no way, uh-uh. He ate a Mediterranean diet. He walked everywhere he went. He would have been muscular, dark, sun-drenched, tough, physically tough as a man. And what we see here is this term being used, Diligent. And so if you think of anything about the day that he was born to the day that he is now to a cross, the word you'd have to hang on is diligent. How many of you or me or anyone you know, if you could tell the future and you could say, Three weeks from now, 
three months from now. 34 years from now, 33 years from now. That everything that I'm doing and everything that I'm about and all the service that I'm doing and the people that I'm pouring out my heart and my love to. But I know what's going to happen 33 years down the road. Every one of my closest friends is going to deny they know me, run from me, flee in my greatest moment of need. Every one of them. All 12 of them. Not just Judas. And, and, and the people that, that God called and he chose and he preserved, the leaders of those people would lie about me and conspire to destroy me and kill me. And it, but the whole 34 years, you know, 33 years, you know. And what are you doing? You just you keep on doing. You meet a woman at the well who's been married five times, four times, not been living with the man she's living with now is not her husband. You intervene for a woman that's been caught in the very act of adultery and, and you tell the people, said, uh, you that's without sin, you cast the first stone. And he did tell her, now go and sin no more. I think everybody likes that story. But they don't like to go and sin no more. Diligent. It takes diligence to go and sin no more. A mind that says... Because of the cross, I'm going to be diligent. I'm going to be diligent with my, with my hateful tongue at times. So James would talk about the same tongue that blesses curse. I'm going to be diligent in my own sin to just look at me, examine myself before I examine someone else. I'm going to be diligent in my prayer. I'm going to be diligent and I'm going to sing praises when I don't want to. Diligence. The greatest act of diligence was on the cross, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now church, I want to tell you something. We are the body of Christ. You can read everything that Paul has to say in Corinthians about being the body of Christ. So, 2,000 years ago, the cross, and you and I have been called to live our life in a manner worthy of the cross, was supposed to result in something. It was supposed to result in people saying, my Savior is humble, my Savior is gentle, my Savior is patience, my, my Savior is showing forbearance to one another in love. And that's what the cross stood for. And I love him, and I love him because he first loved me. And I have confessed him as Lord. And I want to live my life. We had the little wristbands that said, what would Jesus do? WJD. So here we are. And then... What he said was, what he did do, and the reason he did it was not to create a bunch of individuals who live according to their wills for themselves. He did it so that there would be a people that would come together, united on what happened on the cross and nothing else. And there was something, a bond would take place. You need bonding and peace, you'll not find it anywhere outside the cross. I look at all the organizations in my lifetime that men have created 
trying to create some unity and something good that comes out of it. And it's just like this, uh, just a, a domino effect. Each one of them is just falling apart. The best that men can do, the righteousness of men is like a filthy rag under God. But the church, I expect that from men. But the church, we've been called to live our lives in a manner worthy of the cross. With humility, gentleness, patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to do something. Preserve the unity of the spirit in the, in, in the bond of peace. And then there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. I'm going to finish here. As we move through this Advent season, I hope that what happens to all of us daily is that as everything that's taking place in our life, whatever it is, that we can step back from it and we'd say, in, in my decision-making, my choices, my attitude, my personality, is it, is it, am I living, am I living in a manner worthy of the cross? And, and not somebody else, not, not Mark or Larry or Summer, me. Because the unity, that bond, will only happen in this dark world where there was an advent. There was an advent. There's going to be an advent. There was a birth. There was an appearance. There's going to be a second appearance. And the only people that God has given the world to show the world what the Advent means are the people who are supposed to living, be living their lives in a manner worthy of the cross. One at a time. Starting with me. Starting with you. It started with him as he was born and as he lived and as he was crucified, dead and buried and as he was resurrected and as he is coming back. It will be Think about this. When he comes back, it will be in a manner worthy of the cross. Think about that. When he comes back, it will be in a manner worthy of the cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to live our lives in a manner worthy of the cross the voice that you called to us from, from that place 2,000 years ago, to be your people, humble and gentle and patient and forbearing. Help us, Father. Help us so that we can honor you and we can bless others. And we pray these things in the name of the cross, in the name of Jesus. Amen.